Hi, this is Lex, and welcome to the Fintech Blueprint. It's your podcast about fintech, decentralized finance, digital banking, investing, robo-advice, artificial intelligence, and all the other frontier technology that is transforming financial services. To get more content, like an illustrated transcript of this conversation in your inbox, subscribe at fintechblueprint.com. So without further delay, let's jump into today's episode. I'm so excited for today's podcast with Kevin Levitt of NVIDIA, who focuses on global industry business development and in particular financial services. And we're going to have a conversation around data, machine learning, and the financial services industry. Kevin, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Lex. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So maybe just to ease us in into what can be pretty heady uh, topics, how did you get into this industry? What, what has been your path towards both finance as well as understanding the value and the role that data plays in the industry? Yeah, sure. Uh, happy to share a little bit about my background. It's been a 20-year journey, essentially, that has always intersected at data, financial services, and technology. And for the most part, uh, from the perspective of a startup. Uh, so I started at, at Comscore when we were roughly 100 people and kind of just found myself gravitating towards the work we were doing with our financial services clients because I'm also just very passionate about my own personal financial situation, as are most people, and really found that all the work we were doing through data to illuminate how consumers were using at that point, you know, online banking and online bill pay and eventually transitioning into mobile banking and mobile bill pay was going kind of from our research through the data to these huge financial institutions, and then back to me as a consumer through the advancements and improvements that they were making through the technologies that they were deploying to really migrate from branch banking to digital banking, whether that was through a, a desktop or, or mobile device. Fast forward to, to my role at Credit Karma, where I led business development for four years, it was very similar. It was all about the intersection of data, technology, and financial services. Again, all about how to leverage this amazing information that consumers trusted to Credit Karma in terms of their credit score and credit report. And to take that insight on the members that were a part of the platform and to deliver powerful insights back to them so they can make better financial decisions and improve and enable their lives. And so this is really where you could see kind of the transition from rudimentary leveraging Excel to make recommendations to truly getting into more of the machine learning capabilities. I saw this migration firsthand because I remember sitting around the table at Credit Karma where, you know, we're, we're looking at data ourselves. And four years later, it's the machines that are looking at the data, figuring out the recommendations that are best to really help enable the members uh, to make financial progress. And then, you know, the opportunity at NVIDIA presented itself to just take that to the next level. Uh, because, you know, if there's one thing that NVIDIA does really well, it is enable AI for good. And to continue that progression in the context of financial services, where again, I'm really passionate and to have a global scope where I'm working around the world with some of the biggest banks, as well as some of the newest startups to leverage 
and create AI-enabled applications that support all of our interactions with our with our money. You know, has really been a continuation of kind of my career progression over the last twenty or so years. A lot of interesting things to open up there, and I think I don't think we're out of the Excel age. I think it's uh, it would be kind to say that decisions are being made at scale by machines, and in a lot of places in finance, it's still either deterministic software or the rule of thumb for an asset allocation is is still uh, imprinted in people's minds, you know. But I I want to kick around in the past just a little bit more and understand the nature of the data that banks and finance companies you know found valuable and i want to do that because it's it's part of a story of how financial institutions today are different and and how their needs have changed and the things that they now find you know as you say valuable have changed as well you know when you were at comscore what kind of things were curious or useful to retail banks what was it that they derived from the internet sure i would say it first started out in the point of customer acquisition you know banks like most companies are looking to grow and you grow by gaining market share bringing new customers into the bank. And there were a lot of questions, frankly, around would consumers even adopt an online application for a credit card, for a personal loan, et cetera. And, you know, at what pace were consumers adopting, you know, digital to acquire new products and how could a bank optimize that experience to convert as many customers as possible and certainly customers that are credit worthy. And then it migrated from acquisition to, okay, we've, we've brought them into the, into the fold as a customer. How do we better leverage digital to service them? So then the question started flowing around, well, which activities would consumers be comfortable using a digital platform for? Would they actually uh, change their address? Would they pay a bill online? Would they request a credit line increase, et cetera? And providing insights and data from a, a customer service standpoint became very vogue, so to speak, in terms of the types of questions we were getting. And then it was about, well, how would they leverage a mobile device versus a desktop or, or laptop to do these similar functions? And you know, I, I think you, you fast forward to today and we see a lot of the same questions around the application of AI to enable you know, customer acquisition, to enable better customer service, to enable better underwriting. And if you think about AI and the customer journey, you know, the, it very much is a similar path that I experienced you know, back starting in probably 2002, 2003, as big banks began to invest in their digital capabilities. What were some of these behavioral challenges that people had about adopting online or digital channels and technologies? I mean, it's almost, it's it's silly to remember how scared people were of using a credit card, uh, you know, on the internet. And it's almost absurd these days to think that online banking, you know, is a challenger or was something to see as the frontier when today in, in a post-COVID world, it is really the main thing. Are there any insights that that you have from that early time in looking at digital strategies and how people responded to them? Well, I think a lot of the tenets that folks followed back then still apply today. It was about speed. It was about usability. It was about security. You know, and it was also you know there were folks that were considered early adopters 
so those dynamics, you know, I would say still play out today, whether it's from a consumer perspective or when we look across the financial ecosystem in terms of companies that are adopting AI versus those that are just beginning their journey, there are early adopters in that sequence as well. So I think, you know, just going back to, to your question again, it came down to uh, speed and experience, usability, security. Those were kind of the main questions as well as which segments of our customer base would actually adopt these capabilities and how do we maximize the return on our investment in this type of technology? Gotcha. You know, I feel like the the early 2000s, that decade was very much about giving permission for any data to be to be digitized and available and kind of getting over that first hump of the things I do financial and non-financial are are tracked and seen by a machine. And then the next decade, uh, the the 2010s, brought with it this incredible data exhaust, just this sea of information, which could no longer fit into uh, sort of an analyst's tools manually. What did you see happen there? You know, for especially around credit data and decisioning and so on. You know, what were some of the things that you were seeing? the larger financial institutions do that worked well or kind of overlapped with the zeitgeist? Yeah. So I, I think you're right. It, it was the 2010s very much about big data, right? And you know, it's not just about being able to database that data, but how do you actually access it and give the data scientists and probably at that point, the statisticians, the access to the data to truly mine it, you know, data mining became a, a big term then as well, and really make use and create value both for the, for the financial institution as well as for the customer out of those insights. And you know, so I would say certainly banks became more attuned and sophisticated, especially coming out of the Great Recession of 08, 09, and all the challenges all of us experienced due to extended credit practices and, and underwriting that I think we could all reflect back on got a little bit too loose, and then utilizing that experience as a catalyst to make better decisions with the variety of data that the banks have access to about all of us became paramount to winning back consumer trust, to winning back, frankly, or winning new consumers in the marketplace. Because the other thing that happened and transpired out of the Great Recession and came you know, into the 2010s is fintech. And what did fintech do really well? Well, they capitalized on all of the doubt and all of the frustration and frankly, anger for a lot of people at the big banks and built tremendous companies, not just on financial technology, but frankly, on consumer trust. And so that also was a huge evolution and catalyst for kind of the evolution of, of fintech and this new crop of competition for the incumbent banks through the 2010s uh, that persists today. But our hypothesis is that, frankly, the landscape of how the competition is going to play out has shifted. It's not just about consumer trust, that's always going to be paramount in financial services, but it's also about leveraging data and technology for good. And in the case of most of our clients, it's about AI-enabled applications and how to leverage these vast data stores and, frankly, the, the trust of consumers and all of this data with a given company to make 
great value out of it. And our belief is the way to compete and succeed in that is to leverage AI. Yeah, it's interesting how technology in finance is, you know, five to 15 years behind the rest of the the tech world. And so when when fintech, which in my mind really started with mint.com and the consumerization of the net worth statement launched, it was, you know, five years behind the first Web2 companies and the social networks. And over the last decade, and NVIDIA has benefited from this tremendously, Google and Apple and Facebook have all built out deep capability around machine vision, around natural language processing, and other ways to derive meaning and judgment out of this data exhaust that has come out of the internet. And so now it's, it's the, the turn of the finance firms to, to build meaning and to modernize the the gigantic data troves that they have in in part because there's just there's no choice at this point you have to do it that's that's how the world looks like so that brings us to the 2020s and you know if we just level set what does artificial intelligence or machine learning mean to you or mean in this context when we talk about implementation for financial companies sure i think you know, we can certainly start out with the definitions and I would look at artificial intelligence or AI as, as the umbrella, machine learning as a, as a subset of AI, where the machine is following a bunch of rules to infer things about a solution. And it still you know, very much requires a, a human to improve and iterate on the performance of a machine learning model so that you can get more accurate results in predictions. And then moving from machine learning to, to deep learning, uh, which is a subset of machine learning, in deep learning, the machine will actually train itself. You do not have to, to give it the rules themselves. You give it some baselines, some example data, and it, it will train itself. The, really, the, the deep learning algorithm can identify on its own whether a prediction is accurate or not, and through its own neural network, learning really improve itself. And it's essentially software writing software. It's probably the, the most concise way to describe deep learning. And then in the context of financial services, there are numerous applications. You know, we have customers that have you know, hundreds of projects underway, leveraging a common, you know, both machine learning and, and deep learning. And so to your point, you know, the floodgates have opened in terms of, you know, the data is there, the compute power is now there. And just as important in terms of the computing capability, you know, the, the software to take advantage of that computing power is available. And so now we're seeing, you know, a whole variety of AI enabled applications come to the fore, some of which we see as consumers, you know, through recommendations, through virtual assistants and chatbots, et cetera, some of which we never see because it's enabling the bank to be more efficient from a document processing standpoint, from processing our auto insurance claims, uh, et cetera. So we can certainly get into, into more of the use cases, but from a definitional standpoint, hopefully that helps uh, your audience kind of understand, you know, the differences between machine learning and deep learning. What does it mean to train on a data set? And what are examples of things that you could teach an algorithm or train an algorithm to do? Sure. Let's take the example of a, a virtual assistant or chatbot that most of us have experienced at some level, you know, on a mobile application. And, you know, we may have a question around, we want to check our balance or we want to see whether or not a deposit has been made into our account. And we can ask the virtual assistant either through our voice 
or through chat to provide us that information. And the model itself is continually learning from all of these interactions as each of us types that question slightly differently. Some may want to know what is the latest balance. Others might want to know how much money do I have in my account? And while we ask the question differently, we're looking for the same outcome. And models train by taking in all of these scenarios, interactions, etc., and learning based on our approval or our saying, no, that's not the information I wanted to get better at answering those types of questions. And so what all of us have experienced over these past few years is that these virtual assistants and chatbots now, because of the millions and probably billions of interactions we've given them over time, now can answer more sophisticated questions and can enable more sophisticated transactions, whether it's transferring balances or you know, moving into to other areas of our financial lives, such as you know, making recommendations around how to best optimize our savings to keep it in a, in a banking and deposits context. Uh, so that at a very high level is you know, how there's this great feedback loop between the algorithms and the experiences that, that we're providing to it as consumers of these AI-enabled applications so that they get better in terms of the models and the capabilities of the technology and simultaneously our experience with them gets better as well. Gotcha. So I, I think one interesting distinction to think about is whether the, the problem being solved is a financial problem or like a general purpose human problem. You know, so an example of a financial problem would be I need to underwrite a loan. My training data is a bunch of lending decisions from the past based on a bank's history where the bank said yes or no. And then in each case, I might have 50 to 100 data points, everything from zip code to personal situation to some sort of free text field. You know, and based on that, I know how the loan had had gone. And so what I'm what I'm doing is kind of mapping that data set from the bank into a mathematical field with lots of lots of different variables and then you know, running various multi-dimensional algorithms to try and optimize for some sort of judgment. And then anytime I add another data point, that judgment sort of that optimization moves. And so I've got then an engine for decision-making on a very large scale. And I think if you look back a few years, there was a lot of stuff like that, like for insurance, for, for lending, um, a lot of stuff like that also in payments and risk and fraud. But then when you look at chatbots, to me, that feels like a, like a general purpose problem of human speech or machine vision similar to that in the sense that it's, it's a human, just a regular sense rather than like a financial product question. And so there you're, you're taking speech and trying to translate kind of the, the intent that a person has about here's a problem. Can you bring up a menu on a website based on the thing that I say. And so I wonder where the most impact is. Is it in kind of the core factory of financial manufacturing or is it in sort of just another interface, like a voice interface? How do you see that from the perspective of the clients that, that you work with? Yeah, it might seem like a cop-out answer, but the answer really is both, <laughs> you know, and to your point, 
speech is everywhere. English is everywhere. There are hundreds of languages all over the world. Let's keep it here in our own backyard. Speech, English drives 99% of our interactions in a day. And that's where there is a tremendous amount of investment, innovation, and AI-enabled applications coming to the fore through natural language processing and natural language understanding, NLP and NLU. And I would say our financial services clients are investing there as much as anywhere because it is so pervasive. And it's in the interactions that call center agents have with customers, that virtual assistants and chatbots have with customers. It's in the processing of documents to make sure that the appropriate information has been submitted. It's in the identification of fraud. It's in the analysis of sentiment as earnings calls are delivered and traders are making buy or sell decisions on a particular stock. And what is unique about natural language processing and NLU models is that they are massive. We're talking about you know GPT-3, which is one of the more advanced language models is 175 billion parameters. It's extraordinary the amount of processing power that is necessary to train a natural language model. And that's where an accelerated computing platform becomes necessary because you can't train and iterate on a language model once a month. The amount of improvement you would make over years is minimal. You need it to train in days, if not hours. And you know, that's where we see, again, a lot of investment within the financial services community. But back to your original question, it's not just in kind of these general purpose uh, language capabilities and, and solutions that are derived from them. It's also very financial services specific. And you gave the example of underwriting. And you know, there are companies like Upstart that are now leveraging deep learning at underwriting, you know, powered on NVIDIA's accelerated computing platform, where they're taking more information into the decision than just your credit score and your credit report. They're able to look at alternative data, such as your education, your ability to pay your utility bill or your rent, things that aren't necessarily reported to the, to the credit agencies today. And the outcome is really significant. If you think of it from a financial empowerment and financial enablement perspective, because their deep learning models are able to approve 40% more applicants and at an average 16% lower APR. So more people are getting access to the money they need and they're getting at a lower cost, which is really prime example of how the technology of AI can come together with the data available within a financial institution and available from consumers to deliver a great financial outcome uh, for everybody involved. So I want to ask two questions. One is about the scale. And you mentioned GPT-3, which is a language model trained on essentially the entire corpus of the internet in order to uh, you know, largely make science fiction stories for people on the internet, but but also has a bunch of industrial uses as well. You know, and, and so why does it have to be a billion trillion parameters? You know, why does it need to be a mega cloud to crunch through this? Like, why is it better for for this thing to be so scaled up? Like, what is the industrial logic for, I guess, this shape of machine learning today? Sure. I, the thought that's coming to mind is tie it to the size of a dictionary. There's so many words out there and the words can be combined in so many different ways. And, you know, I could be answering this question in, you know, 
hundreds of different sentences and some perhaps ending in what would seem like a question, but is actually rhetorical and and others leveraging compound verbs, whatever. It, it could just take any machination you can imagine. And the technology has to be able to keep up with that because everybody speaks with a, a different tone, a different rhythm, a different accent. We all put words together differently. We all have different dictionaries in our own heads and the sources of you know what we might use to explain certain situations and experiences. And if the technology isn't capable of understanding how words can be put together in all these myriad ways, then it will be ineffectual in servicing our needs, whether that's in a financial services context, whether that's in a travel context, whether that's in a retail context, a healthcare context, et cetera. And the more that the models can can understand what it is that we're truly asking and what we truly need, the better the experience will be. And it also needs to be not just accurate in terms of the interaction, but it needs to happen in milliseconds. To bring it back to financial services, we've got a great case study with American Express who's using deep learning to identify fraud. And they need these deep learning expansive models at the point of sale to happen in less than two milliseconds. And you need the same thing from your virtual assistant and chatbot. The last thing any of us want is to be waiting seconds you know, for an answer because that's not how natural language works. It's immediate. And so you need the computing power of an accelerated computing platform like NVIDIA's, whether that's on-premise or in the cloud, to not only train the models, but also to handle the inference. So that at the point of sale, at the point of communication, it's a natural interaction one that is seamless and one that delivers the value that we're expecting as users of the technology. Gotcha. And and so I think one of the interesting byproducts of making these massive robots is that they're often better at doing some of the things that people do and we don't even realize this. So for example, you know, machine vision is better at object recognition, discrete object recognition than people are, meaning people are more likely to make a mistake when they see something than if you were to to put that through a machine system. Now, people are better at making contextual sense of everything, of figuring out how the environment fits together, but you know, it it is also true that like self-driving cars make fewer errors than people-driven cars. And this, I think it's in 2014, maybe 2012, when human vision, like the, the benchmark for human vision was passed. And so I guess the question when, when we go back to finance is, are these functions, are these lending functions, underwriting functions, and so on, are the machine systems better, more accurate, more fitted to, to their use case than the human underwriter or even the statistician? Like you mentioned Upstart with you know lower APR because they're able to, to make less errors. Do we expect a world where there will be much better sort of capital risk fit between these robot intermediated systems versus versus something that's a lot more, I guess, abstracted or simplified for people? Yeah, I think it will ultimately play out on a use case by use case basis. But you know what we're seeing for the most part today is that the technologies, the machine learning algorithms, the deep learning neural networks are complementing us as humans. They're not replacing us. And if they are replacing, it's removing the rote and the mundane. Because you're right, 
they are better at identifying that this actually says $10,000, not $1,000, and therefore is likely some sort of error, given that the question was, how much should you spend on, on groceries last week? And so while we may miss that in piling through millions of documents, a computer is much better situated to understand and identify that data entry error than a human is. And you know what? We would probably 99 out of 100 of us would be happy to pass along that mundane analysis of data entry to a computer so that we can focus on higher value, higher order questions. Things like what else is necessary to approve you for this home loan? We don't want to work on the error associated with the document. We want to work on how can we get an individual into their dream home. And so that example plays out not just in a consumer lending or retail banking experience, but it can play out in the capital market side as well, where there certainly is the capability for algorithms to handle trades and to make buy and sell decisions on their own. But in many cases, these computer algorithms, the machine learning and deep learning capabilities are just frankly providing signal to the human trader so that they have all the information that is paramount and critical to making a decision available to them, you know, at, at light speed. So, you know, I, I, I find that most of what we're experiencing is that the technologies are truly complementing the human capital or the human resources involved in the service and the delivery of a, of a capability. But where banks are finding a lot of opportunities to frankly free their most valuable resources, which is all of us as employees to focus on, again, the, the more complex questions and, and opportunities at hand. I think that we, we're on a skeptical podcast. And, uh, you know, I, I think there's so many sharp edges to this stuff that are hard to predict, right? And I think, for example, I know that one way to frame what financial advisors do or what, finan or, or financial institutions do or want to do is to, to give people financial expression or to, or to give them financial health or things of that nature, right? Whereas what you're really doing with machine learning algo is kind of optimizing it around an investment return or you're optimizing it around some sort of trading strategy or some sort of underwriting return, right? So in many ways, you're squeezing out the cultural judgment that a person might bring to the conversation. And in a sense, that's good because we're in a, in a world that is moving far too fast for every single decision to be done by a human being. And also, you know, there's a sensitivity now around kind of culture expressing itself in a, in a negative way and in, in, a, in a biased way, again, if, if something's not built into more machine rules. And so I guess I just wanted to double click on this idea of what is this stuff really for? Is it to make banks more profitable? Is it to save costs? Is it to make better financial products? Like, or is it just part of the value chain and part of the technology stack? And, you know, just, just another thing like cloud, for example. I would say it, it's all of the above. Right? Banks, like most companies, are for profit enterprises and they are looking to drive top line revenues. They're looking to remove operational expenses. And that goes for automobile manufacturers, 
that goes for airlines, that goes for hospitals, you name it, for-profit enterprises will look for ways in which to drive more efficient, more profitable practices. What they can't do is do that at the expense of delivering improved customer experiences, better products, better solutions that meet the needs of their customers. Otherwise, we'll make choices that involve their competitors rather than them and make decisions about where to house our money and where to do business. And so certainly there is an element, you know, of finance that pervades all of this, but it's also pervading the experiences that we have as consumers. I'll go back to the fraud detection examples, right? Where if banks, credit card issuers, et cetera, don't get better at identifying fraud, all of us, all of the good guys will likely pay for that at some place, whether it's in higher borrowing costs, higher monthly fees, who knows, but that will have a negative impact on the financial health of our financial services providers and therefore probably translate into higher costs down the road somewhere for us. So we want them to leverage artificial intelligence to do a better job at catching the bad guys. The same thing goes for you know auto insurance. When there's spikes in fraudulent claims that get paid out because crime rings have figured out how to submit faulty accidents to a given auto insurance company, that could potentially result in increased fees to all of us for our auto insurance bills. So we want the auto insurance carriers to leverage computer vision technology to understand that actually this picture of this dented bumper has been submitted before. And it's a repeat claim and one that should not be paid out and it's potentially fraudulent or it's been, you know, it's a photoshopped or doctored picture. And so there is a lot of good that is being done with AI and AI enabled applications that, you know, span the entire customer experience from when we first as consumers decide, oh, I want to get a new credit card. Which one should I be considering? Recommendation engines, recommendation systems that are machine learning driven can make the right product recommendation based on our personal situation. And then when you go to apply, we already gave this story for Upstart in terms of how deep learning can positively impact underwriting. And we've talked about virtual assistants and chatbots and the power they can deliver in a customer service experience. We've talked about fraud detection. You know, All of these things come together in our own personal journey with financial services and experience with our banks. And so you mentioned earlier kind of Apple and Google and Facebook and all the big tech companies and their involvement in financial services as well. The landscape is really shifting. It's not just the incumbent banks versus fintechs. It's not just the, the fintechs versus the banks. It's the fintechs versus the banks versus the big tech companies versus retail. You know, Walmart is spinning up their own uh, fintech capability. And so how are these companies going to differentiate? It's going to be, to your point, how do they deliver better underwriting decisions that enable all of us to power our financial lives? How are they going to deliver enhanced customer experiences? How are they going to do a better job at finding the bad guys and identifying fraud and weeding it out of their systems? All of those things will be AI enabled. And if they're not AI enabled, they will be inferior to those of their competitors. And so I think we're all going to benefit as companies get better performance and 
more AI-enabled applications out to market. Absolutely. So can you tell us a little bit more about what it means to be AI-enabled? And then you've mentioned the accelerated computing platform. You know, what is that? And then how does it, how does it connect to building applications that have machine learning inside of them? Yeah, sure. So an AI-enabled application is, is simply a solution or service that leverages you know, machine learning or deep learning capabilities in the delivery of that service or solution. So again, it's enabled with some form of AI, whether that's machine learning or deep learning. And then from an accelerated computing perspective, it is no longer just about hardware. And I would say, you know, certainly the computing power associated with, you know, a GPU has opened the door of opportunity in terms of building all these manner of you know, machine learning and, and deep learning algorithms to support the delivery of solutions to the marketplace. But it's not just the hardware itself, because you can't take advantage of that hardware unless you've also got the software that maximizes the ability of the hardware's capabilities. So when we at NVIDIA are talking about an accelerated computing platform, it is a full stack computing platform. It is the hardware, which really addresses the needs of the IT and infrastructure leadership within a financial institution. Then above the, the hardware, which is really chips and systems, you've got the platform software. And think about that as essentially the accelerated computing libraries that take advantage of the, the computing power available in the hardware. And really the, the audience and the customer of the, the platform software are the machine learning operational leaders, the data scientists within an organization. Uh, so you've got the, the platform software sitting on top of the hardware. And at the very highest level of the accelerated computing stack, you have uh, the application layer. And this is where there are, you know, in the case of NVIDIA's platform, pre-built applications that are ready to help line of business owners and product managers deliver AI-enabled applications to market, whether that is recommendation systems through Merlin, which is our application framework for Rexus, or whether it's conversational AI capabilities built through our application framework for conversational AI, which is called Riva. And there's a whole suite of pre-trained models uh, that we have built to address, you know, really the core applications that are needed across a variety of industries, including you alluded to autonomous vehicles earlier in the conversation. So that's really an opportunity, thank you, to share kind of NVIDIA's kind of full stack accelerated computing platform and how it addresses the needs of the, the key stakeholders uh, within an organization. Awesome. So if we were to um, to kind of land land the conversation in our science fiction future, you know, imagine a world where we have infinite compute and infinite storage and all the data is immediately available and, you know, all the models are endlessly open source and updated in real time and, and they work flawlessly. And all of this is available through through your service offering, you know, and uh, the only thing that, that banks and investment managers and insurance companies need to do is just say yes, you know, so no technical limitations at all and kind of let's say this is this is the version of the world five to 10 years from now. What do you think money looks like? What do you think financial services looks like? 
what is the shape of the the financial lives of of regular people and then you know what is what is the shape of the financial industry how do you think it'll look and organize in a world where machine decision making and judgment is is really commonplace and you know just to to make that a comparison to the earlier point about people being afraid to share their credit card online in the 2000s right and here we are where uh, everything is virtual credit cards left and right it's it's easy to imagine a world where all these in, initial limitations that we have might go away. So what do you think is that maximalist AI world for finance? Yeah, I think it's going to be bound by our level of trust with the technology, with the financial institutions, because you're right, the, the technology will be there to enable autonomous finance, just as it will be there to enable autonomous vehicles. And the question, you know, just to take the analogy a step further is when it comes to our financial lives, how often and for how long are we willing to let go of the steering wheel? You know, would, would we allow an autonomous finance solution to refi our home mortgage once it hits a certain threshold that we've provided to it? Or once it hits a certain threshold that the models and AI algorithms believe is appropriate given our financial situation? I have no idea kind of what that ultimately looks like, what time horizon that happens in. What I do know is that the the big pivot that's really taken place is that the ability of AI to complement and enable our financial lives is no longer constrained by the computing capabilities of the, the hardware and the software. It is now limited by our imaginations in many ways. And so what our imaginations will create and deliver over the next five to 10 years. I, I cannot wait to see, because <laughs> if you look at how much has changed over the last five to 10, it's gonna be uh, a lot of fun. Uh, but the competitive landscape is going to continue to intensify. As we talked about, there are a lot of players that are interested in understanding who we are as financial consumers and how to leverage those insights to help all of us live our best lives and also you know transparently to help them figure out how to monetize those insights and ultimately it will be up to us to decide to what extent we're comfortable with the technology and where we will draw the line but for those of us that are willing to let go entirely the capability should be there. And obviously all of this has to happen within the, the regulatory frameworks that are in place, that will be in place, et cetera. But what's awesome to see is that the data is becoming more and more accessible and the technology to leverage that data for good is becoming more pervasive. Absolutely. And that's a fantastic place for us to conclude. If our listeners want to find out more, where should they go? Sure. Thanks for asking. Everybody, I would encourage you to visit nvidia.com. When you go to our website, you'll see at the top tab an industry section, and you can click on financial services and get in touch with us. You know, we're working constantly around the world to really educate and enable everybody, again, from the fintechs to the largest banks in the world around the opportunities associated with AI and financial services. And we're excited to partner with all of you on that journey. Awesome. Kevin, thank you so much. Thank you. 
Hi, everyone. That's it for this week's episode of the Fintech Blueprint. For more technical deep dives into all things fintech and decentralized finance, check out fintechblueprint.com and grab a free subscription to the newsletter. This is Lex, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>